Welcome back to the Collectability Podcast. This is part two of my interview with Kevin O'Leary, aka Mr. Wonderful. If you happen to miss part one of this interview, please visit collectability.com so you could catch up and hear his answers to all these interesting questions around the world of watches. Last time we left you with a cliffhanger of a question, and right now we're going to share with you Kevin's answer. Now, do you think the modern watch market is gamed in any way, given the information that's shared, which isn't much from the manufacturers, given the way the retailers have these tight relationships with their buyers? I mean, it's ripe for problems, especially in a world with social media. How is the market gamed, in your opinion? The skeptics say it is gamed. I say no. It's an open auction, open cry auction. Let me give you an example. Recently, a large collector that had a very large number of Jorns that he'd collected over a 20-year period brought a huge number to market at once in one day. Now, if the market was gamed and you thought that Jorn had somehow achieved these astronomical price appreciations over the last four years, that market would have collapsed with over 20 pieces on the market. That's not what happened. Some of them got record prices. And so the auction market keeps everybody honest. You know, Everybody keeps saying, well, I'm not going to buy a Patek. I'm waiting for prices to collapse. Well, good luck. Like, that's just not going to happen. There's an insatiable demand for almost every piece, some more than others, as you well know. The collections come out every year. People scramble. They try and make their decisions early. They put their markers in. The smart collectors ask once. That's it. And they show their indications. And then I tell them, shut up. Sit and wait. Now, with so much data supporting the growth in the value of watch collections, why do you think more people aren't looking at watches as an asset class? For example, we've seen other categories fall. The dot-com, historically, we've seen different other assets that I won't mention now collapse. But what about watches? They seem to weather the storm when there's these ups and downs all around. Why aren't more people jumping into the game? I think over time they will, but the reasons watches never collapse the same way other asset classes is they skip generations. People are proud to wear their father's or mother's watch. And because they skip generations, they have an imputed value in perpetuity. And the aftermarket for supporting watches and repairing watches and maintaining watches is a multi-billion dollar industry in itself. Insuring them, everything else, it's because of the emotional attachment people ascribe to something that a parent owned. And that will be forever. And so what you find later in life is your children start saying, well, look, you know, we know eventually what's going to happen to you. Can we talk about your collection and which ones are going to stay in the family and which ones aren't? And I've actually had that conversation with my kids. Recently, something else has happened, and this goes for the pro case of watches. Many of my pieces that women would have never worn are now worn by my wife and daughter. They borrow them all the time. Huge 41s and millimeters. And, and that's part of fashion, part of style. And indeed, they're even buying pieces that are larger now. And women were you know, originally 36 and under. And, and so we're seeing a lot of change in the market, but I'm seeing more and more younger men and women in their early 20s. And I have a very, very large social media base. So I'm constantly in dialogue with them. Early 20s saying, I want to get a watch with a red band. I mean, what brand <laughs> do you think I should buy first? I get right into that dialogue with them. And I always say to them, don't borrow money. Do not put this on your credit card. If you have a target, 
Find out how much it is, save it, buy it, own it. You'll remember it forever. You know, a lot of that dialogue goes around brands like Tudor, Grand Seiko. There's some amazing Omegas that are just collectible and yet affordable. Follow-up to that. If you have a certain amount of money, let's say $500,000, yeah. what percentage of your net worth should be in watches? Never more than 20%. Okay. And no one watch should represent more than 5% of your net worth ever. If you're buying watches in the millions of dollars, mm -hmm. you better have millions of dollars. First of all, getting access to that means you shouldn't be reselling it until you're dead. So that's gonna be a long-term asset, like a bar of gold. But no watch more than 5% of your net worth and watches in total no more than 20% of your net worth. And I follow that rule like crazy. You are the first person, I think, to share publicly an opinion on what percentage of your net worth should or yeah. could be in watches. And you've also shared that $5 million is a magic number in your mind. Yes. When you hit $5 million, I put it in your words, what happens when you have $5 million? You have set yourself free for the rest of your life. You have to understand that when you put that money into a watch, it has no yield other than capital appreciation. You have to decide what your lifestyle is going to be and what you need on an after-tax basis and buy you know, dividend-paying stocks and bonds to provide for that. But you can also buy long-term assets, and I recommend watches. It'd be one of those, just like gold. Some people like Bitcoin. I mean, there's all kinds of alternative asset classes. And when you think about the context of a portfolio, and I say the same thing, my mother taught me this. If I look at my stock portfolio, which is a huge part of my net worth, no more than 5% in any one stock, no more than 20% in any one sector. So I don't own more than 20% tech stocks. In my real estate portfolio, real estate's unique in the sense that some people let it become up to a third of their net worth, but that's also a heavy maintenance cost for all those buildings and condos you own. So you have to have balance and, and, and you need diversity, no different in the watch collection side of your business. But you get so much camaraderie and so much joy. And, you know, I'm going with my wife on a tour of Japan. I own a Credor, so I want to see where it was made. That, for those of you, well, you would know what a Credor is. Yes, I've, I've toured the, the, uh, the factory. Yeah. And it's incredible. Incredible. And, love that. And of course, I put it up there in terms of when I, when I wind one of my Pateks and I wind my Credor, <laughs> they feel the same to me. So there's remarkable workmanship in a Credor. And of course, we're with the Jorn Society. Um, if, you're, if you own Jorn watches and you get past three, you can petition the society to join if you're a real collector. We'll welcome you with open arms and you can join us all around the world as we pursue our interests in watch collecting and horology. That's what we do. So each of these opens the door to a country club. More or less. It, it really does. And, you know, here's another Jorn I think you've seen. I mean, this is a beautiful piece. It's black because I'm a collector. I mean, Jorn is very, they only make 900 watches a year, so you have to petition to get it. I waited two years for this piece. I don't know if you've seen this Marin. This is the Tutti Frutti. I think there's only six of these. It's a crazy dial. I mean, you know, speak Marin, very nuts. The music, which... Mm -hmm. I think I talked to you about this watch. It's an overseas, so it's not as coveted as a Royal Oak. But since I've been wearing it around the streets of New York, I've had like 20 offers to buy it. Apparently, you can't get these anymore. That dial makes a statement. It's a huge it. statement. It's rock and roll, baby, right there. That is just gorgeous. It's a beautiful piece. It's a lot of fun. This is the one of a kind I talked about that was at the auction last December from Chopard, the laughing Mexican mm -hmm. skull of death. It's just nuts. <laughs> that is gorgeous. Is it's, that engraved? Yes, it's hand engraved. There's only one of those. It's eight-day reserve, power reserve. I mean, it's a crazy piece. You have to find the hour in the teeth. 
Wow. It's it's very good. So if you have 20% of your personal assets and watches, not you, I'm just saying if one has 20%, yeah. how do you protect yourself for authenticity, theft, and all that goes around it, just like keeping them safe day to day? Well, after you have 50 pieces, you're not going to keep 50 in your home. Very few people do. You go to a vault system with banks, and I do that in multiple countries. So I have an inventory control system. I know what's sitting in Switzerland. I know what's sitting in Miami. I know what's sitting here in New York. I know what's sitting in other cities. I travel with about 17 pieces, that's it. And I insure those specifically. I have arrangements when I am traveling with them that they're in a secure vault. I wear three to four watches a day. I start with a morning watch, I switch at lunch. There's an <laughs> afternoon piece and then I decide what I'm going with for the evening. Otherwise, it could never go through my collection. I mean, what's the point of having a collection? People that buy watches, keep them in their box and never bring them out, that's when the watch actually loses its soul, it dies. It, it dies. It, it's a dead watch. It's You haven't shown it respect. It never got out and never saw the daylight. It can't speak to its watch brethren. I mean, that's insane. You have to wear the watch. I frankly think that the watchmakers know that you're never showcasing the piece. And, and I think that puts you down at the bottom of the list, in my view. I don't know that with certainty, but... You know, this is a different, you've seen this as a Rolex. This is, they don't make that anymore, but that was the original sort of classic all steel white face Daytona. And then of course you can see it again with the ceramic and I have the white for that too. I mean, everybody wants these pieces. It's they're one just, of the hottest watches out there. It's crazy, but, and, and with a red band, of course they're Shark Tank classics. I, I auctioned my, I had a, a Daytona that went for over 60,000 for charity with Paul last December. They're all storytelling pieces. Of course. Let's Wait. talk about this uh, new edition. Yes, John. There I've actually owned this now for two and a half hours. I left the meatpacking Rolex store where I went to pick this up. I believe it to be only one of three in America. There's one rose gold, there's one white gold, and there's one yellow gold. This is mine, the yellow gold. I mean, I was expecting something unique because I'd seen so many images of it. This is the puzzle or emoji watch, supposedly a day date, but it does not display any days or dates. When I first saw this piece, I thought it was an AI hoax and so mm -hmm. did everybody else. I called my contacts at Rolex and they said, no, it's no joke. I said, it has to be. No one would ever approve that at Rolex. I know Rolex. They said, no, you don't. Now you've been proven wrong. They've done it again. They've kept the classic look with a completely insane new idea for a dial. Now, if you're a dial guy, you have to have this. I'm very, very fortunate. I'm very fortunate to have one of three. When I saw it for the first time, it blew me away. I thought it was gonna be a 10, it's an 11. It's a 36. I have not seen one of these in person because there are none out there, Yeah, but I'm really struck by the quality of the enamel. Is it true cloisonne enamel? Yes, it's true that it's also each puzzle piece is encapsulated in a gold mm -hmm. ring. And that's what pops when it's it casts in the light. That's all I can see. And these sapphires yes. mark the time. I mean, it's a crazy piece. For Rolex, it's completely shocking. It, and, and I you know, love that, that they did I, that. I, and so I'm so proud of them to just come out of the left side and just yes. go, bang, deal with this. So now I have a whole new respect for them. This is a crazy dial. Where else can we go with Rolex? I mean, it's got me excited in Rolex like I haven't been in years. I can't wait to wear this on TV. Tomorrow I'm all over the networks. I'm wearing this. I think it's going to be nuts. 
It's oh. a conversation starter. It and is. I think it has a great place in the collection. As soon as I get a red band on it, it's going to be a big hit on Shark Tank. But I'm not going to wear this with a red band often just because I have to do it for continuity on Shark Tank. This president band is just beautiful with it. And you commented you love the president bracelet, which is the most classic, identifiable bracelet. To me, it's my favorite of what Rolex has made classic, Mm -hmm. and it's never going to change. It's just spectacular. I have so much respect for the history of Rolex, keeping that look intact decade after decade after decade, and yet experimenting with something like this. It's been great. I mean, just it just it, it, it reinvigorates me to just, when I left the store, I said, look, you guys keep doing what you're doing. I'll just keep buying. Now get back to work. Now, each of these watches have a wonderful story, personal. They have also an economic story as an asset. Well, they're all appreciated in value. They've all gone the right direction up. They all have boxes and papers, which I'm sure you have stored. Oh, that is, you know, I think about, I didn't even talk about the loose from Patek. I mean, mm-hmm. this is also incredibly hard to find. Oh, you don't see those. No, you don't, but you know why? It's got a red band, a factory red band. Mm -hmm. I got down on my knees and begged for this piece because I've been chasing Patek for 15 years to let me put red bands, as you know, that never happens. In Asia, they released a couple of pieces once with a red band. This was a North American release. I only asked once, but with such passion, they must have felt the electricity. (laughs) A red factory band are you kidding and who knows maybe that red strap was somewhat inspired by what I you would, have been doing i know red years. bands are on the rise i like to think yes. i'm part of that movement i mm-hmm. mean red makes dials pop and it just really works with a black suit and i wear a uniform i've worn the same suit on shark tank for 15 years i have 25 of these suits <laughs> so with all the moving parts in your collection i mean that as a pun do you think there's a place for physical assets to be tied to NFTs, for example? It's a topic we've discussed before. Yeah. Where do you stand on that question today? I would very much like that digital documentation, but I have come to the realization, as I know you have, John, in talking with every single brand about NFTs, this is not going to happen overnight. It's going to take decades, and a standardization will take decades. The use of NFTs, I I have now come to the conclusion the idea of trading an NFT away from a watchmaker, zero chance of happening. Because I remember having this conversation with F.P. Jordan himself, and he just looked at me in in horror. (laughs) Wow. So they can see it as a methodology for insuring the watch, authenticating the watch as a form of travel papers with it. But the idea that you are going to get an NFT that you can trade away from the original piece, I don't think we're going to see that in our lifetimes. Yeah, it's an artist rights question. Uh, it's beyond mm-hmm. artist rights. The, the idea that the soul leaves the watch and somebody else owns it. Yes. I've seen the look of horror on the watchmakers' faces. They just look at me and say, what are you talking about? It just seems increasingly obvious that someone's going to get it right of how to tie each of these watches to something in Web 3.0. It might not be called an NFT, but it's going to be some sort of digital pair. And I can't wait to see who gets there first and how that develops. I'd love to be part of it. And I've tried to invest in it and I want to be part of it. I think it'll be a very interesting part of insuring a watch because you could actually with the NFT say, here's my location. I only insure the 17 I'm traveling with. I don't need to insure the rest. They're in vaults under the streets of Zurich. I mean, good luck trying to steal those. But my point is I want to have 
these insured, if something happens, and I want them insured at their resale value in today's market. And so we have not achieved that yet in the insurance industry. We have a lot of work to do, particularly when you're talking about a piece like the Emoji or, or the Loose, uh, you know, from Patek. I mean, the, or any F.P. Jorn. I mean, when I talk to insurance companies about F.P. Jorn, they're saying, we can't even get our head around that capital appreciation. Like, and when they talk to Jorn about replacement, he said, there is no replacement. I'm not making that watch again. I'm done. Anytime you do a one of a kind, this is irreplaceable. Yeah. There's never going to be. One of one. One of one. And so when I talk to insurers, they say, no, we're not insuring that. You just should never wear that anywhere. And that breaks my heart. So here at Collectability, we've identified and defined four different types of collectors. I want to tell you what those four types of collectors are. I'd love to know where I are. fall into what category. And then I'd like you to tell me which one you think you are most. Okay. Number one, the treasure hunter. Number two, the speculator. Number three, the accumulator. Number four, the researcher. Which one are you? Hi, this is Kevin O'Leary, a.k.a. Mr. Wonderful, and you're listening to my interview with John Reardon, the legend for collectability. Wow. Is there such a thing as being both? Yes. Yeah. I think I'm the accumulator and the researcher. I have no interest in speculating on watches. i be honest with you, I don't know what I paid for these. I really don't. I don't remember because I don't care. I just know that I didn't borrow money to buy them. I do know what they're worth every day because I keep that for insurance purposes and I mark to market like I do every asset I have. In my office, we mark to market our entire portfolio. We run money for the state of North Dakota. We do all that every day, it's automated. That's when I started to notice as accumulator the capital appreciation was going crazy in the last four years. And I started calling around saying, what's going on here? Is it a fake market? Is it a manipulated market? And I come to the conclusion it's not. So I'm going to say accumulator and, and researcher because boy, am I deep in the weeds on new watchmakers and you know one of a kinds. I have another one of a kind coming, an incredible piece from F.P. Jorn. I'm so excited. Again, waiting years for it. My trouble is I'm going to die one day. This is a big problem. Well, you're taking them with you. Yeah, I think exactly. you've already settled them. Yeah. So what's your dream watch? Is there one piece that keeps you up at night that someday will be coming your way? I would say right now what I'm really anticipating is that Jorn I've been waiting for. Vertical Tribune, although I have been looking at his... Francis Ford Coppola. Have you seen that piece, The Hand? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, he's only making three a year of those. So, you know, when you know a watch is close to being completed, the anticipation, it's that Carly Simon song, anticipation. That's what's happening with the Journe. So right now that's on top of mind for me. I'm planning, receiving it, going to go to Miami for it. You know, I generally do social media when I'm receiving the watch and we, and we put it out there for people to see and enjoy. That's pretty on my mind. But I have to admit, this Rolex has got me just in a tizzy, if that's a good word. I'm going to be wearing this for a while because it's just too cool. I mean... There's nothing like this in my collection. And so it's going to be, um, listen, you got to hand it to them. We're saying it again. They've really knocked it out of the park with this thing. It's I think that is now my favorite modern Rolex. It has to far. be. And I would agree with you because until you hold it and you feel it and you mm -hmm. see it and the way it pops, the way that they've done a masterful job on that dial. 
Whoever made that dial, I mean, free hot dog for that guy. It's <laughs> fantastic. What about vintage? Where do you stand on collecting vintage watches? And do you think that could be your next? Uh... It, it, well, I did buy a World Timer, a mm -hmm. vintage World Timer, 175 edition. Very complicated getting that piece. I just love the dial. They stopped making it, as you well know. Mm -hmm. uh, that black dial, I just went through so much work to find that piece. And uh, that was sort of my foray into the Batek vintage. I've been buying vintage Omega for quite a while and Cartier's because they were early watches for me and I had a couple of my collections stolen, so I have to replace them one at a time. I know all the pieces and I've searched the world and the Interpol records and everything else. There's something sheer evil about stealing people's watches. I mean, it just, and I've had it happen to me twice, inside jobs and everything else. And so now I really concern myself about my security systems. You're going to have a really hard time stealing my watches, whoever you are out there. They're just never where you think they are. And that's, you know, how it works. People think they're going to go to my home and find a watch. Never. It's a good reminder that collectors should insure their watches, protect their watches, yeah. and don't assume the assumable. Yeah, exactly. But when I ask about vintage, I go back a little further. I have this piece here. So let's go back 125 years. Yeah. Patek Philippe pocket watch. Yeah. What are your thoughts and feelings when you hold a watch such as that in your hands, which is significantly older than what we have here? Yes, I mean, by miles, but it, it's remarkably well built and how beautiful it is, which goes to the legacy of what Patek has always been, master watchmakers. But I have never found my way into pocket watches, not yet anyways, because I'm so down the road of traditional watch collecting. But I understand why people get this virus too. In the world, everybody knows you're the guy for this because how do you know when you buy this that it's authentic if it's over 100 years old? How do you know with certainty? And that's the beauty, the extract from the archives. Yeah, and, and so you are the archive guy. Well, Geneva has them. You pay them 500 Swiss francs. Yeah. They give you movement number, case number, describes the dial in detail. Yeah. And you have essentially a historic NFT. I mean, I would never buy a piece like this unless you were involved because who else can you trust? Imagine you're a major collector and you get duped. Yes. That would devastate me. That's one of the reasons I'm so concerned about, like, you know, they say 10% of Daytonas in the secondary market are fake. Like, I don't have a secondary market Daytona. And what's incredible, you could take any of these to service at the respective companies and you're going to find out, well, you know, they're all 100% correct. What's amazing with these, you could take them to Patek Philippe, they'll service anything from 1839. And that's when you find out if everything is correct. Will they authenticate prior to purchase? Can you do that? With no, that does not exist. Do you get someone to open it and look at it? If it's so, a piece you don't know. In other yeah. words, what concerns me is all of a sudden a very important piece shows up on the market, like a John Lennon Patek. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows where it is. I would buy that watch if I could, but I would want to know with certainty that it was his because everybody's gonna fake that piece. Exactly. So how do you how, how do you authenticate? And that's where collectability comes in. It's yeah. knowledge, scholarship, connections, yeah. forensics. And yeah. I wanna put the F first for forensics. Right. It would be very hard to fake that watch, for example, because we know when it was sold, where it was sold. But I wanna talk numbers on this. So in the year 1900, this little pocket watch cost $250. Yeah. Today it's worth $6,000. Is it a good relative investment? 
What year? Was it 200? I saw 124 years ago. I would say yes for this reason. It's probably going to start accelerating in appreciation as more people get into that. So you're buying it for, that's a relatively benign acceleration. You've probably calculated the IRR on that. It's low. <laughs> you can't look at it like that in the yeah. sense it's like buying gold. Right. Uh, but but it's years. where will it be in 20 years? That's the question. Yeah. Yes. And I would bet as more people get into pocket watches, that Patek would be the gold standard period for pocket watches. I mean, I'm trying to think of another brand that is more coveted than that. But it's just the demand for pocket watches is a smaller vertical. It's a smaller vertical. Oh, it's a very small yeah. group of There's people. probably a 25 people in the world that control 80% of the really... Uh, of the highest of the high. Of the highest of the highest, yeah. So, all right. We're in the home stretch now. Yeah. Have you ever had any horological regrets? Any mistakes that you've made? I have made mistakes. To say that I've never made mistakes, I've let impulse buy pieces that I'm not proud that I own. That never happens to me anymore, but I learned as a young buckaroo that you do need the research piece. You do need the emotional connection with the dial. It needs to feel right. I've talked to many collectors about this. You know, I for a while was having a hard time getting my head around something like the Eye of the Tiger from Rolex or even the Loose from Patek because it included diamonds and, and emeralds and other... It took me about 10 years, and now I really appreciate the artsmanship of creating pieces like this. And I wear them proudly, and I love them for their, their just celebration of color and everything else. But it took a while. And so you better feel good about what you're doing because you're spending a lot of money and you're making an emotional connection. My biggest challenge every day is I go through the portfolios, which 17 for this month? Which ones? Or which 17 for this week? Or which 17 for tomorrow? You know, I, I when I go to Shark Tank next week, I'm going to arrange for security. We're going to go through with wardrobe. Let's look at 100 and pick seven. Think about how hard it's stressful that is. stressful in a way. Well, yes. they all have to be different. Okay. They all have to have red bands. They all have to be unique and they mm -hmm. can't look the same. So I'll come up with something amazing, but that is work. So let's talk a little bit about Shark Tank and horology. My kids and I love watching Shark Tank and we've been watching you for, for years. It's 15 seasons now, right? Yeah, that's Which right. It's incredible. But the only horological story I could think of, and I curse Shark Tank to this day, is uh, something called Clocky. There was a, a woman that came on, her name was uh, Gore Nanda, who made this thing called Clocky, which is an alarm clock that rolls on the floor, makes all these noises and lights, and you have to chase it in order to get out of bed. Right. Literally, my youngest daughter has one. Every morning, this is what starts my day. I curse <laughs> Shark Tank for that. So, so thanks for that. A successful product. A great I product. I mean, the magic of having 100 million people see your product in syndication on Shark Tank is you sell a lot of stuff. Yes. I mean, it's a, it, nobody ever expected this to happen. It's a remarkable platform. Now, have you ever been pitched a watch company on the show? Yes, or? we have. Yes. yes, we have. Yes, we have. I believe that one didn't air because, as I pointed out, it was bastardizing watches, it, okay. which to me is- Unforgivable. I think it's, I, you just can't do that. I mean, you're disrespecting the maker yes. and the brand. What are you doing? Like, if you ever want to become a collector and you're opening the piece yourself with some rogue mm -hmm. mechanic, uh, you're finished. Do any of the other sharks understand watch collecting or watch culture? The one that's closest would be Hershevik. He is a big Rolex collector and is respected as one. 
But diversity of style, no. Everybody always says to me, please get me a Rolex. I mean, I hear that every day and I get it. Rolexes are so important. To get that level of brand globally is just, but to collect watches is to respect all the makers. Now, have you ever noticed a nice watch on a guest on the show that's pitching to you? Many times. And I'm starting to notice red bands on them. Ah, uh, that's clever. It, that's sucking smart. up works. Yeah, that works. If you're listening out there, <laughs> sucking up works. That is fun. Now, in, just in your business dealings, like in life, do you notice watches in the boardroom? When you walk in, do you notice what people are wearing? <laughs> that's, I don't notice them. It's the first thing I look at. Yes. I, if I can't see the piece, I say, can you lift up your cuff? <laughs> I want to know what you're wearing. It tells me everything about you. Yes. Everything. And so if you don't think wearing a timepiece isn't part of who you are as a person and a brand, you're crazy. I mean, there, you, you, the, your watch is an extension of who you are and your personality. And you should think about that. That's why I've changed so many times a day. What am I feeling like for lunch? Where am I going for dinner? What's happening at breakfast meeting? What do I want to show when I'm on this TV show or that TV show? This is the whole deal. It's it's the storytelling of watches. This is why I'm into this. And when, you know, and if, uh, th you know, there's a very popular electronic watch out there. And if that's all you got, well, shame on you. I recently watched your, well, this, I think it was eight months ago, uh, Harvard Business School asked you to speak. And it was one of, I think, the most engaging conversations you had with a group of highly intelligent, highly motivated students. And then some of them actually pitched for you. But you told and gave them some advice on a pitch. And that's the fact that you're, you're watching them. You're looking at eye contact. Yeah. But now you're telling a number two, one of Kevin O'Leary's secret hints of success, your watch. Says everything about you. So eye contact and yeah. your watch. Yeah, but if you, you only want, have one chance to make a first impression and the timepiece itself says everything. It also tells me what kind of a person you are. I know the difference between a Patek person and an AP person and a Rolex person or or a Jorn person. My goodness, you want eclectic people. My, I mean, my goodness. So if I see a Jorn on you, you could be a brain surgeon. You could be an astrophysicist. You could be an artist. You could be a painter. You know, you could be guitarist. I mean, that company goes out of their way to diversify who owns their pieces. Nobody hits me up more than for Jorn's. And all I can do is bring them to meet the Jorn people. I'll tell you a great story. He's probably going to kill me for telling you this, but Jay Suris, who is probably one of the most renowned agents in Hollywood, UTA, if not the number one guy, particularly in the news industry, got into watches. He had them before I met him, but I passed the virus to him and he got diseased. And he started seeing my Jorns out in Hollywood and he just went crazy. He was calling me four times a day. I said, look, Jay, it's not going to happen. You can't just march into a Jorn boutique and say, I'm Jay Suris, I want a Jorn. They don't care who you are. They don't care how much money you have. It just doesn't matter. He said, I'm Jay Suris. I'm the best agent in the world. I have to meet FP. I said, you, you gotta be kidding me. Like he is, he doesn't care. It doesn't matter. He said, I just want to meet the man that makes these watches. I said, okay, Jay, I'm in New York. I'm going to the boutique tomorrow. He's flying in from Paris. We're doing a dinner. If you happen to be on the street outside, I'll make the introduction because <laughs> you're not getting in the boutique. Son of a gun. He was waiting outside on the street. Oh my goodness. 
he owns two insurance today. See? A little panhandling he, goes a long but, way. You know, he made an appeal mm -hmm. that they're underrepresented in the media industry of managing media, not stars. They've got plenty of people on insurance, but the people that manage the industry. I believe Jay Suris is the first of that caliber of manager to own Tujurans. And FP respects him for that. So now he has found his way into being a Jorn collector. This is what I'm talking about. This is the magic of collecting and the brand and the history and the person and the story. This is what it's all about. All about human connection. That's it. Well, Kevin, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with us today. I was able to ask so many questions. I have more for you afterwards, Great. which we cannot uh, uh, share no, publicly. No, we're going to talk about the John Lennon Patek. Yeah, so things... the rest of you have to go away, and I'm going to find out more. But this conversation is going to continue. Great. Thank you so Congratulations much. Congratulations on I really enjoyed success. it, John. Fantastic. Thank you so uh, much. Always you, a Kevin. pleasure. We could talk watches for two days in a row. Let's do this Just again bring in sometime. the pizza. That's it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kevin, for being with us today. This was an extraordinary deep dive into the world of horology, and you are an inspiration for so many entrepreneurs, including myself. I want to thank you for that personally. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe on the Collectability channel on YouTube, Instagram, and also TikTok. This is John Reardon for Collectability. Collectability.